could we begin to uh, come back together and um, we'll move forward with our program this evening. We want to welcome you all officially to the 644th regular meeting of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable, our 65th anniversary celebration. And it's a good night. Give yourself a round of applause for making it out here 65 years. And what better man to have Ed with us tonight. Um, thank you very much for being here. Uh, just a couple of updates before we get into some of our things we're going to do tonight. A couple medical updates, first of all. Steve Stewart continues to make good progress. He's in the last part of his kind of isolation program. He, he is um, very concerned. For those of you who don't know, he has a, had a bone marrow transplant using umbilical cell uh, stem cells. He's doing very well, uh, very well. He's very concerned about pneumonia right now, so he's and catching the flu. So he's kind of restricting everybody. So he's kind of living by himself, isolated, but he's very close to getting out. And he told me he hopes to be here in November. So hopefully next month he'll be with us again. Um, so we're very happy to keep Steve in our prayers too. Also, our, our good friend Frank Pettis. Uh, Frank has had two surgeries lately. He had bypass surgery, triple bypass. He just had this week cancer surgery, and he pulled through that surgery well, but he's picked up a little pneumonia right now. And it's it's been a little hard for him right now, but his lovely daughter Margaret is here today, kind of honoring him and uh, kind of representing Frank here tonight. So I know all of us here at the Roundtable want to send Frank our love and our prayers. And uh, let him know that, please. I was also told Jerry Warshaw is in the hospital. Is that correct? Somebody know that? Jerry Warshaw is in the hospital in the north side? Evanston. Evanston. Okay, so thank you, Bill. So please do keep uh, Jerry in your thoughts and prayers as well, too. Uh, another brief announcement. Um, I'm going to ask Dan Weinberg to start heading this way wherever you are, Dan, because I want, Dan's going to say a little something uh, about the Pritzker Military uh, Library. Dan, are you here? Nothing like calling somebody out and they're not in the place. So. <laughs> here he comes. Speak of the angel, so to speak. Okay, while, he, while Dan is coming up here, um, I'll just say a word. Uh, everybody knows Hal Ardell, who runs around with his camera and grabs pictures every meeting. Hal um, has been putting these pictures on the web for a long time on the Internet, and now he has a separate website for that. And if you want to get this down, he has pictures from many of the past years. Is that right, Hal? About two years. About two years of meetings, he has all the pictures on there, and it's at this website kodakgallery.com and then slash Civil War. Is that right, Hal? www. Yes, we, we know. So www.kodakgallery.com slash Civil War and all of uh, Hal's great pictures are there. We also thank Hal for taping these talks as he does so faithfully every month as well. Thank you very much. Give Hal a round of applause. Thank you, Hal. I'm going to get McMurray's talk last month just to hear him talk about VD again. <laughs> Anybody who heard Richard McMurray knows that. He has all those talks. So I'm going to ask Dan to come on up for a moment and tell us about a great uh, program going on right now. Hello, everyone. Um, the Pritzker Military Library is a new library here in Chicago, about two years old now. And most of you, I don't think, have heard of it. And you should know it. And I've been trying to get the Civil War Roundtablers together with them uh, for two years. So at last we're going to do that on November 12th, Saturday. 
And Doris Kearns Goodwin is going to be coming in and speaking there uh, for an hour. In fact, it's going to be a Civil War day. We're going to have Pete Cousins in at 10.30 in the morning, and then there'll be some music in between. And then at 1 o'clock, Doris is going to speak about her new book, Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, This is actually going to... Spielberg is coming up with a film with Liam Neeson uh, as Lincoln, uh, starting next year, they're going to start filming it, based loosely on Doris's book. And it's a great book. I've just read it. It's a great narrative. But she's going to be there, and we're trying to get you, roundtablers, there to see the place for the first time. So uh, I hope that you'll get one of these flyers. I don't have enough for everyone, I'm sorry to say, but they produced one. In the back, you'll see, uh, if you don't have them on your tables now, you'll see these flyers in the back. It doesn't have a date. I'll have to teach them that. But November 12th is when it is. Uh, so pick up one of these, and uh, you have to have a reservation to be there. And you can go in and out. There'll be a $10 box lunch. Uh, there'll be some coffee and donuts in the, in, in the morning. Uh, if you want, if you can make it, that would be great. Give them a call. Uh, you'll have to find their number. That's not on here either. Uh, <laughs> the other is that this is back there. Hmm? It's in on their website. Actually, I have it written down. Let me think about it. There is one there? All right, good. Okay, they didn't have the date, November 12th. But you've got to call to make a reservation. You can't just go to the day, day of. But it, it's worth seeing this library. One of the Pittsburgh kids uh, <clears throat> went to Vietnam. I don't know, if I had billions, I don't think I'd go to Vietnam, but he did. And he had a great library on World War I, II, Vietnam, other more 20th century, but they're trying to get now back to the Civil War and 19th century. So I hope you'll all go there. If you can't make it, uh, it's November t- uh, 12th, which is a Saturday. It'll be 1 o'clock for Doris, 10.30 in the morning for Pete Cousins, and you can go to their website and find all this out. There's another flyer back there that I have that you can also take, and this is called virtualbooksigning.com, .net, excuse me, virtualbooksigning.net and which is going to take you to the Pritzker when you go on to this. And you can see in your PJs back home, you can watch Doris for an hour, give a talk, and uh, enjoy that talk. And if you can't even hear it then, you can always go back to the Pritzker anytime after that. They archive the talks. But I'd really like you to get over to the Pritzker and see it and make a reservation. But if you want then a book, you can actually um, uh, get onto virtualbooksigning.com and order the book, and you'll see your book signed on the computer in front of your eyes, and then we'll send it out to you. But I hope you'll come and see Doris there. Yes? Do you know what subject he I think that he's going to speak something about battles and leaders, how it was put together, what he did to, uh, you know, he put two more books together, uh, making Battles and Leaders now six volumes. Uh, and he's going to speak about his adventures doing that, what he's found, how it was originally put together, maybe even the one on the Indian Wars. He's doing the same thing of Battles of Leaders, Eyewitness Accounts of the Indian Wars, which is already, I think, four or five volumes. So Pete will be there in the morning as well. So I hope you all make it on November 12th. But go to, uh, military, uh, go to the Pritzker Military Library and get this and go on their website. And if you can't make it for this, make it some other time and get up there. It's worthwhile seeing. Thanks. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate that. It's a great privilege to be able to be present this year, our 65th year, 
for all the tremendous things going on. It means a couple of special things. Uh, we decided to do something a little special to honor this 65th anniversary. So all those of you who are uh, signed up members already of the roundtable should have gotten, if you did not, a gold pin of the Chicago Civil War roundtable when you came in. Okay? If you did not get one of these, Jerry Allen has the whole bag sitting right over there. So talk to him. And if you didn't get one, um, that means you need to sign up and become a member. <laughs> and then you can get one of these. So we're happy to give all of our members one of those tonight as well. We have a great crowd tonight. This is one of our biggest crowds I can remember in, in my years here. Uh, it's a tremendous credit, of course, to our history and, of course, to our, I think our speaker probably had something to do with that, uh, having Ed here. But uh, we, are, we, of course, had a, a special offer, uh, two for one tonight. Uh, guests get to come free, and we did that not just because we're great people, which we certainly are, <laughs> but we also did it to encourage membership. And so on your table, you will find uh, several pink sheets. So if there's any guests who are here tonight who are interested in becoming a member, this is the night to do it. Because tonight only, this is a $5 off membership fee at any level you sign up at. And if you came with a member tonight, and that member, you better get some arm twisting going on here because your member gets $10 off their next meal here. You get that guest to sign up tonight. So I want to see a little Chicago politics going on here, you know. <laughs> vote early and vote often here to get people in. So please, uh, you'll have that on your table all, all night long. So please fill that out. Donna, raise your hand. You can give the form to Donna. Jerry is standing up. Jerry Allen, raise your hand. You can give it to either one of them if you have a completed membership form as well. Jerry's pointing to Donna, but... Give it to him, too. That's all right. <laughs> um, before we move on with our standard uh, list of things that we always do, the roundtable in these past 65 years has honored a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Um, of course, we do the Nevins Freeman Award every year. You know that. We do uh, lifetime memberships and other things. However, there's a lot of, of people throughout our history who have made tremendous contributions behind the scenes. Just doing the normal, everyday stuff that people don't always hear about, a lot of times without public recognition. And um, the Roundtable movement's really founded on that. People are giving a lot of their own time and their own effort. I thought today on this special occasion, I felt it was important that we as a group honor several behind-the-scenes people. We've given a lot of awards in our 65 years. I thought tonight we ought to give a few to some of the behind-the-scenes people who have been contributing a lot in at least these recent years, my years here, about 15 years at least, to the round table here. So we have a few people that we want to give something to uh, tonight in a special way. The first person we want to give a special kind of a memorial to today is a, a man who is known for his scholarly insight. Uh, he's a popular round table speaker known in various, many, many places around our area here. He is very skilled in writing. He's an author of books, very well known no matter where you go. This man is well known and well respected. Uh, his organization has, uh, his gifts have shown itself in working with the newsletter and the biographies it puts together and the computers and things like that. He is a gentleman, he's a roundtable man, and maybe best of all, he's a Sox fan, Bruce Allardyce. <laughs> Congratulations, Bruce. You sure you're talking about the right I am man, talking right? about you, Bruce. It says Lifetime Service Award to Bruce S. Allardyce, October, October 14, 2005, 
No better man. Deserve his worst than you. God bless And somebody upstairs must be liking you, Bruce. The Sox are up 3 nothing in the first <laughs> inning. First inning, so see? How is that? Thanks, Bruce. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. A second person we want to honor tonight is as a, a man who has, I've, I've seen it myself in my years here, has given untiring hours on tours. Um, a lot of stuff when you go on those tours, you just find. And you ever wonder how it got there? You know, like tour pins and maps and badges and things like that. He did it for me. He did it in many other tours. He's going to work in many other tours yet to come. Uh, this gentleman, almost every month when our speakers go up to Milwaukee to speak, he's the one who takes them up, brings them back, chats with them in the car. Now, you'll never doubt what this man feels because he'll tell you what he feels, but you'll also never doubt his generous roundtable heart, Roger Bond. Thanks, Hendrick, Roger. Congratulations, Roger. For lifetime service, Roger Bond, October 14th, 2005, from the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Congratulations, Thank Roger. Thank you. Thank you very much. And finally, one last uh, service award we want to give out. This last person has been a member here for close to 33 years and never really publicly honored, to the best of my knowledge, a former president, as of course Bruce and Roger both are as well. But when the time came for the website to start, this man came forward and volunteered to help us get going and get started. When the time came for a computerized reservation line, he volunteered to do it. He is renowned for his penetrating and certainly passionate questions. Uh, there's never a doubt anyway, though, about whatever's questions, his deep commitment to roundtable philosophy, Mr. Bill Sullivan. Please come up, Bill. William J. Sullivan, Lifetime Service Award, October 14th, 2005, Chicago Roundtable. Very grateful, Bill. Thank, Thank you. you very much. I don't deserve it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much. And one final one. This person is not here, but I should tell you just a brief history. Many of you know this already. Our Nevins Freeman speaker, of course, this year was Richard McMurray. When we had our executive committee meeting, the, the person that we first wanted to come to be our Nevins Freeman uh, winner was Grady McWinney. And Grady was not able to be there due to his increasingly severe health issues. Um, but Grady is a man who has contributed so much to the Civil War Roundtable movement. We wanted to honor him from our Chicago Roundtable. So I'm going to ask Larry Hewitt to come up. Larry knows, Grady, where are you at there, Larry? And we're going to ask Larry to pass this on to Grady McWinney and to his family a Lifetime Service Award for a grateful appreciation from the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. And now let's just have a brief word. We have two tours coming up. Uh, we're not going to say anything about Manassas today. Everybody knows we're going to Manassas? Mosby and Manassas. Nancy Jacobs, where are you, Nancy? Wave your hand. Just wave your hand so we can see who you are. There's lovely Nancy. Talk to her. So get your reservations in early. We do want to have Donna Tui to come up for just a brief moment to say a word about a more recent uh, tour coming up very quickly. Marvin. Oh, Marvin, I'm sorry. Marvin. My other half. <laughs> <laughs> Marvin is never without words, we know. Come and tell us, Marvin. Right, I'll, make, I'll make it brief. Ed, 
You really brought in a crowd. Thank you. You know, a lot of people got honors tonight, and I had a few myself from here. We don't do this work for anything, any other reason except we love the club. I can speak for all three of those gentlemen, and Grady too, who got an award tonight. Marshall Krolik said it about 25 years ago. There's a lot of love in the room. And that's why we do it, and that's why we continue to do all this work and everything else. It's not work. That's the wrong word. We enjoy it. We would pay money to do it, and we, we do. do. <laughs> and we do. We do pay money. <laughs> that's really the truth of it. We just love it. But I want to keep you a little more busy, and we need your assistance and movement, and I want to sell this tonight. It's like a television performance here. We're selling it tonight. We have a tour going to Springfield. It's to the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum, and we're going to get to go to the library. It's November, it's Saturday and Sunday, November 5th and 6th. We were requested to do this by our beloved president at the executive meeting over the summer, and working with Brooks Davis and Donna Tui and myself, we put this thing together one, two, three, quick. We rented a bus, and we're all set to go. Now we need passengers. <laughs> and the motel that we've got wants to know by Monday how many are coming at this price. After Monday, if people sign up, we can still take you, but you're going to pay a little premium because we got a special discount for the, for the motel. Now, let me tell you the, the details of the tour. It's, I gave you the dates. The tour guide will be Tom Schwartz, who's the chief historian of the state of Illinois. He is going to take us through not just the museum, but also, later in the afternoon, the library. And he, you couldn't get a better guide or a better fellow to be with us. The tour starts Saturday morning at 8 o'clock in Northbrook. We have a place to park. It's right near Dundee and Edens, where you can leave the car overnight free. The bus will start there, drive downtown to the John Hancock building where people who live closer to there can get on. Then it will drive southwest along I-55. And thanks to Ray, we have a place. It's the Holiday Inn Willowbrook. And there you can park your car and leave it for the day. We will drive down to Lincoln College first and have lunch at Lincoln College and have a brief tour of their museum. Then we really get busy. We're going to go down to Springfield. We're going to see as many sites as we can, time providing. We're going to go to Lincoln's tomb, Lincoln's home, see his law offices, uh, the railroad station, as much as we can crowd in without running out of time. Brooks has arranged a lot of these things for us, especially a tour of the Lincoln home. A special tour, isn't it, uh, Brooks? Then we have a wonderful dinner planned that night uh, with a speaker. Who's the speaker? Stacy McDermott from the Lincoln Legal Society. Stacy McDermott. The next morning, we get a uh, breakfast on the house. By the way, this the price is $195. It includes the bus transportation, three meals including the dinner Saturday night. It includes the uh, motel room, which is the uh, 
the Quality Inn State House. Yes, I got it written down here. As they say, it starts in Northbrook, goes down there after Lincoln College, and then we have the afternoon. The next morning at 9 o'clock, we start the major tour of the event, and that is the museum. We'll tour that. Your lunch will be on your own. Around 2.30 in the afternoon, we will start back home. We need to know tonight, or the latest by Monday, if you're going to go. If you can't afford to pay it tonight, we have forms in the back. Just fill them out for us so we know you're going. We want to get as many people. We have one bus. It holds 48 people. That's the limit. So please make up your mind as soon as you can and let us know. Anything else? You got it. You got anything to add? Okay. Yes. Brooks. Question. Yes. Yeah, we just uh, discovered there's quite a few people that are interested in doing that, and we'll have to come up with a special price for it. Two things I'd, I'd like to add. The Chicago Historical Society is, is sponsoring a similar tour for $325. And the other thing, on a humorous note, I was president for the 25th anniversary 40 years ago. All right. Time flies. God bless you, Brooks. God bless you. Thank you, Brooks. Okay. Okay. Quick, uh, quick show of hands before you move on. Who might be interested in coming? Just raise your hand if you're possibly interested. Okay. We have about five or six people here. Okay. Just talk to Marvin afterwards. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Donna, Tony, Tony, would you come up very briefly and... Um, this is very have everybody uh, for our guest tonight. All right. First of all, I'd like to recognize folks who signed up as new members tonight. Please stand up. Charles Kratz is one person. Stephen Kowalski. Anyone else? Congratulations and welcome to our fine club. <laughs> Now, I've got a very long list of uh, guests, so I'm going to ask you all to stand up and be recognized. All non-members who came tonight as a guest. And we have Margaret Pettis. All guests, please just stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Remind you once again, we have that special today. Grab those pink papers, $5 off for membership today and $10 to the person who brought you, too. I'm um, going to ask our quiz master, uh, Rabbi Zucker, where are you at now today? I, I, don't, I have to tell you, after last month's quiz, there was a movement to impeach this fine man. We had to escort him out of here with special caution. So he came up this month with a quiz that has been described as a softball quiz. But we won't, we won't say anything about that. <laughs> well, I will. I will say simply that during the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, when President Kennedy was finished briefing the members of Congress, most of whom were more hawkish than he was, he had already decided on the blockade, and they were ready to bomb Cuba. Uh, the president then said to his staff afterwards, 
Why anybody would want this lousy job is beyond me. <laughs> a few personal comments on other subjects before I start the quiz. I met Grady McWinnie when he spoke here about 10 years ago, and I brought with me a copy of his then recently published book, Cracker Country, Celtic Ways in the Old South. And when I brought it up to him and gave it to him to autograph, Grady turned to Ralph Newman and said, with a big smile on his face, look what he brought me to autograph. And he signed it and then said, well, that the book had sold well, but that the academics hadn't liked it. And as Mayor Daley used to, the elder Mayor Daley used to say, what trees do, they, do you plant? Um, and as to Nancy, yes, I'm looking forward to our Bull Run Mosby tour. Bull Run. All righty, on to the quiz. I apologize for the quality of the graphic reproduction. I didn't quite expect so many of you tonight, and it was necessary to run off more copies in some haste. But anyhow, here is the quiz. Uh, name the president in 96-97, a self-confessed St. Louis Cardinals fan. That answer is B, and that's Larry Gibbs. <laughs> Two, name the first inspector general. That answer is A, Marshall Krolik. Three, true or false, Bruce Catton received the first Nevins Freeman Award. That's true. Number four, name the Civil War Roundtable president at 89.90, a bus marshal on our tours. That answer is A, Dick McAdoo. And five, true or false, Dan Lipinski was the first Confederate Purple Heart winner. The answer is true. Marshall, what did he win the Purple Heart for? Trying to give me a live pig. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. There were several. There were several one hundreds here. Uh, apparently, God must be indeed be smiling on one of our members. That's White Sox Bruce, who got a hundred on the quiz to boot along with everything else. The remaining one hundreds were somebody who signed himself Mr. Cub, uh, Jim Shoes, Steve H. And along with the Society for the Prevention of Steve Horton, <laughs> Janet, and Marshall Krolik. And those were the 100s, folks, and I thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And last, our book raffle, Bruce, would you come up and... Uh, Larry's going to do that. Okay, come on up, Larry. Okay, first of all, I've uh, been hearing all about the White Sox, and I know that the Cardinals are playing at uh, 3.30 tomorrow afternoon. I want to know when the Cubs are playing. <laughs> and then I hear some, uh, uh, some discontent in the audience. Uh, also, I've uh, found out that uh, sitting next to our featured guest tonight, Mr. Bars, uh, I've been on many tours with him. I can tell he's very jealous because he wasn't on the quiz, and I was. So uh, he's very jealous. Anyhow, we have $135 raised for battlefield preservation, and uh, let me draw the... Okay, before the drawing, uh, Mary Abro, who's now in Vienna, uh, has, uh, has a uh, paper here about the Chicago Roundtable for the honoring Ed Bars for his award that we give to uh, Ed uh, for the battlefield tour of increments of $1,000. And so if you need any more information on that, uh, it's in the back of the, uh, back of the room on the table. So let's have the drawing first. Ed, you want to draw the first one? 
Okay, the first number, the last three numbers are uh, eight, seven, nine. Seven, nine. Okay. Uh, the next number is 799. 799. Last three numbers, 799. Is eight eight two, eight eight two. Eight eight two. Oh, that's yours. Okay, I'll draw another one. Wow. Okay. All right. The next number is seven seven one. Sonny, you don't have that one. Okay. Seven seven one. All right. Very good. And the last one is 808, 808 for the last three numbers. Okay, here's the winner back there. Okay, all right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Without further ado, we're going to um, gonna have Roger Bond come up. Roger's been uh, Ed's guide, bus chauffeur for many trips, many places, and good luck, Roger, give a brief word of introduction for Ed. I think it's altogether fitting and proper that we should have Ed Bars as our speaker on this occasion of the 65th anniversary of the founding of the Civil War Roundtable movement. Civil War Roundtables have grown and prospered, I, I feel, far beyond anything that Ralph Newman and his friends could have imagined 65 years ago. One of the reasons I feel that they've prospered is uh, our speaker and our dear friend Ed Bars. Um, he has done many things over the years to spark our interest in the Civil War and to fan our enthusiasm uh, again and again. That's one of the reasons, I think, for the success of Roundtables. One of the, I think we all agree that, that Ed has a remarkable depth and knowledge on the subject of the American Civil War he also has great depth of knowledge in several other fields as well. But remarkable as that is, I think what is truly remarkable about Ed is the fact that he so willingly shares all of this vast knowledge with us. Freely and willingly he has shared this knowledge for many, many years. And as remarkable as his knowledge is, it is truly remarkable that he will share it with us as he has. So when I ask you to help me welcome a, a remarkable historian, I ask you also to help me welcome a truly remarkable man, Edwin C. Bars. It's always a pleasure uh, to be at the Chicago Roundtable. Uh, it was a pleasure to be here uh, 15 years ago when you celebrated your 50th birthday. It was a greater pleasure as you get older and you count the, the years to be at the 60th uh, birthday. And I remember that well because he is a coup. I, 
and it kind of took the stump, took the, uh, took the steam out of the ones on the stump. Question one, when, uh, when General Thomas uh, leveled the, what he thought was a, uh, a trivia one, uh, where, uh, what hotel did he check out of on the 15th day of December, uh, 64, when he out, went out to, uh, win the battle of, of uh, Nashville. Now, I couldn't think of it a moment, and then I said, will you, will you uh, pardon me, and if I think of it in the next question, I'll answer it. And hardly the next person question, asked his question, and it came back, St. Cloud Hotel, and if anybody had any secret ones down there, that kind of devastated them. <laughs> and now it's even greater to be here for the 65th. That means you, I've got a, another uh, five years under my belt, and I uh, was kind of uh, um, kind of wondering what to talk about. Uh, the subjects were chosen for me. I always like the roundtables to choose the subjects. I do not like to choose the subjects myself because they're a little more challenging when the group picks the subject. Then I give, uh, then if I give the talk myself, choose it. Because I know a few people, and I don't mention them, that every five years they resuscitate the same talk they gave before and then repeat it. But I don't like to do this, and uh, this one undoubtedly, instead of, except for the one I spoke last night, will be never given again. Because I'm probably going to insult uh, some people's forebearers or some people's heroes as such. Well, the first subject I'm going to address is, is forgotten generals or forgotten battles. And I think, thank God, some of them have been uh, well to be forgotten. <laughs> you don't really worry about insulting anybody when you focus on battles, but uh, uh, when you focus on personalities, it may be different. Now, the United States Army, when it uh, when the Civil War burst, consisted of a little over 16,000 men, 1,100 officers, and if you don't count the bureau chiefs, and the bureau chiefs are staff officers, and everybody knows what line officers think of staff officers, whether it is in a Civil War, it is in World War One, Two. And I presume that in, uh, uh, in Iraq, line officers had the same opinion as staff officers uh, because that is habitual uh, throughout military history. Line officers have very little use for staff officers. Too bad if I have some staff officers sitting here. Well, the, there, at the time of the outbreak of the Civil War, there were only four generals in the United States Army. Before uh, the Civil War, we'll see 460-odd Confederate generals, over 530 Union generals. So that gives you over 1,000 generals in the Civil War. But I, uh, uh, and generals seem to proliferate with our small armed forces of today totaling about, 20, uh, about two and a half million people. Lord, uh, Lord knows we have more generals and admirals 
now than we had when we had 16 million people in the military service in WW2. So we seem to be, if we, I hope we don't get into more wars, because before we're finished, there'll be more generals than there are privates. <laughs> now, the four generals that were around that we had when the Civil War broke out, now everybody has heard of one. If you haven't, uh, you are not heavily into the Civil War. That is uh, the who, the, who was a brilliant man still in 1861, but he had, who, but as we know, in the Mexican War, he was arguably the most brilliant general. Wellington was in his dotage at that time in the world, and also the handsomest general by all matter of means, all six foot four plus of him, and in his chapeau, he would be, uh, consider, he would be over seven feet. Uh, that, of course, is Winfield Scott. But by the 1861, uh, he had, dropsy, he had uh, gout and dropsy and had increased his weight uh, to far above the 275 pounds and probably was reaching around 500. And it was said, and it's not apocryphal, that he needed a system of pulleys uh, to get him to his feet uh, when he uh, rose out of his chair, and it was probably impossible for him to sit a horse any longer. Well, General Scott will, uh, will basically set the strategy, which was greatly ridiculed, of how to win the war. And that was the anaconda policy. But he will depart from the scene on, July, on uh, the first day of November, 1861. Now, the problem with the, and the North reaps the whirlwind of it. There was no retirement for people with long service in the military at that time. Yes, you could retire, you could resign but you receive no percentage of your pay. Thus, if General Scott had wanted to leave the Army at 70 at his age, uh, with no retirement, he would receive nothing. So you'd better be an, an, one of these officers or colonels or majors in the Army at that time. You had better be wealthy personally or find a rich widow that would want to marry you. Because the, there is no retirement in the army with a rank and a percentage of your pay until the first week of July, 1861, when both Lincoln and the Congress realized we got an awful lot of uh, generals uh, and colonels and majors who are rather long of tooth and may, if they're not senile, approaching them. In fact, interesting one, the head of the, bureau, the medical bureau is 81. Nice young man. <laughs> and then they will let them retire at the age of 64. 
provided and they will receive two-thirds of pay. They're going to, there's no great exodus out because they grandfathered these older boys. It's the ones after that that reach 65 uh, that will have to, uh, excuse me, 64 will have to leave. So we get rid of General Scott. Now, uh, General Harney, a giant of a man. They seem to like big men then. Harney will decide he doesn't want to get involved in a civil war, and he will disappear abroad. He'll be remembered today principally because the highest mountain in South Dakota is named for General Harney. Uh, General Wool, they'll send him, he'll retire in 1862. And the one you'll get, the only one of these guys will go south. That will be Davy, Davy Twiggs. And he will be, he'll give the south one of the greatest boons they'll get. Of our small army, one-fourth of it is stationed in the Department of Texas. And Twiggs is a Georgian. And his first loyalty is to, the, is to the new confederacy. And he will surrender one-fourth of the United States Army, which is stationed in Texas. Then, get a, then become a major general in the confederate service. And after about four months, thankfully, die of a heart attack. So we don't worry about him. <laughs> now, I hope you, I know Marshall Crowley could have identified every one of those gentlemen. Could you, Marshall? All right, so we get through, we get through that. Now let's get some other ones that will thankfully be consigned to oblivion rather early in the war. <laughs> now I like to always bring up one. How many of you people have been to the cemetery in Franklin? Did you, do you know, who, how many of you know the only general officer in the battlefield in that cemetery? And you should see his marker first of all when you go in there. That shows how quick he is forgotten. <laughs> that will be General Johnston Duncan. Yes, he was a Brigadier General. Yes, he is a West Point graduate. Yes, he does fight in battles. Not very successful because he's in charge of the forts located, Forts Jackson and St. Philip. I know you people have visited Jackson. Few of you have visited St. Philip that are bar the, the riverine reproaches, approaches to New Orleans. Uh, his force will mutiny. Uh, he will become a chief, of, he'll become a chief of staff to General Bragg at, uh, in the fall, in the early fall of 1862, and then dies. So he is a he is has plays some role in the Civil War, and I don't think anybody remembered who he was after. And you and I know if you've been to that cemetery, you had to see that marker when you walk in. And then you have uh, you have another fellow who great. Things were thought of at the old uh, at the beginning of the war, and that of course is uh, Gustavus Woodson Smith. Now uh, I think our friend Davis seems to like everybody from Kentucky, 
and knows a great deal about everybody from Kentucky. Are you well apprised with uh, General Smith? Well, he is, he is number two in the Confederate Army that fights the Battle of Seven Pines. And when Joseph Eggleston Johnson is wounded, he will assume command of that army and immediately suffer a nervous breakdown. Now, if you're Confederates, you better be glad that he suffered a, a nervous breakdown, because if he had not, you might have had him a while longer. Because it's very apparent that he has suffered a nervous breakdown. And uh, Bobby Lee, I have to watch myself, but I'm generally, in, if I was before the UDC, I would be do dodging brickbats. Or law, or and or feeling that I'd done something wrong, if I referred to the general as the Yankees did, because uh, you mark yourself as a Yankee if you refer to him as Bobby Lee, uh, because that he provides the entree to General Lee to assume command of what becomes the Army of Northern Virginia and will end up commanding the Georgia militia. So he is another person that is going to be consigned uh, to being a big player and is now all but forgotten. Now I wrote down to pick on Union ones. Now the Union has, the union has a real problem. Most of the senior officers, colonels, and lieutenant colonels in the Army, who are not young men. Now, Robert E. Lee was born on night, I use, use him again, just to give you an idea on ages, uh, of, these, of the colonels in the Army. Robert E. Lee was born on 19th of January, 1807. And he is the most junior colonel of line in the United States Army. He becomes a colonel in February 1861. And so you can see he is not very young. And uh, so that means that these fellows that are going to be, who you would think may be great soldiers, because they're each going to command a division that marches out of Washington when Congress had convened on the 4th day of July and begin to wonder what these guys that have been called out for 75 for 90 days, we've got to get some value out of them. And they'll go to Mr. Lincoln, and Mr. Lincoln thinks we better get some value out of them. And Mr. Lincoln is going to tell General Irwin McDowell, who probably you, Mr. Lincoln and others, probably wished he had been forgotten early, <laughs> uh, because, of course, General Irwin McDowell is picked not by Mr. Lincoln to command the army assembling around Washington, but he's, per, per, he's, per, he's picked by Salmon Portland Chase. So uh, Lincoln kind of 
punted there and got what you would expect. A, the deputy adjutant general, who is a round man, and, uh, and he will, uh, of course, have under him uh, this wonderful triumvirate, uh, four division commanders. Uh, Daniel Tyler will disappear fast. A little more about him when we discuss forgotten battles. But he will command a division at the Battle of First Manassas. Now you have a, uh, you're going to have another one, Dixon Miles. Dixon Miles will command there, have charges brought against him for being three sheets to the wind uh, by Dick Richardson, will survive, and then comes up commanding at Harper's Ferry. And as he's ordering the white flag to be raised, we'll and a shell will explode, uh, and, uh, and he will die. So he will be thankfully consigned, but you'll maybe know a little bit more about him because of when uh, he sees the Yankees abandoning Maryland Heights, uh, he will, uh, he will uh, uh, give a, a he has given the guys up there to hold Maryland Heights until the tails drop off the cows. And then when he sees those Yankee boys fleeing off of it, uh, he will say, God, thunder and God and damnation. So that gives a good quote to use, but he will then be forgotten. Now the other two division commanders will be known a little better. Now, one of them is Black Dave Hunter. Now, all people in the Shenandoah Valley, and my good Virginia friends, and, uh, he is their betnor. He likes to burn houses. He's not as efficient as other of the Union forces in devastating the valley because he ignores too many barns, mills, and others to leave them for Sheridan's command, but he's particularly expert at burning large houses. Now, Mr. Lincoln likes him. I don't you, I, I, see, the, I see the Lincoln people shudder when I admit that when I made such a statement. <laughs> now, if I wanted to get ahead in the Civil War, you know what I would do, Brooks? I would be, or Dan, I would be on that train that leaves Springfield, Illinois about noon on the 11th day of February. And I'd have a lot of quality time with Mr. Lincoln. And one of those guys is Dave Hunter, major and paymaster in the Army. He's a good man to have on your side who investigates the Harper's Ferry surrender, David Hunter, who presides at the booth trials, David Hunter. So he finds his niche, doesn't he? Who uh, presides over the court-martial of Fitz John Porter, David Hunter. So I think Lincoln knew him well, wouldn't you say? And, uh, 
and the other will be Samuel Heinzelman, who thankfully will disappear after the Battle of, uh, of uh, Second Manassas. Then I always like to bring in uh, two fellows that uh, are not well known, thankfully. Now the first one I'm going to bring in is Reuben Hatch. Does anybody know Reuben Hatch? Y'all do. He's a brother of Ozias Hatch. Now, uh, it's a good thing that in our modern society, Abraham Lincoln would come under some very bad publicity on the 28th day of April, 1865. Reuben Hatch, through the good auspices of his brother, through, the good, through his connection with the great of, our, of Mr. Lincoln, is a quartermaster at the post of Carroll, Illinois. He cooks the books. Yes, you had book cook, you had book cookers then. He's court-martialed and cashiered. Ozias goes to Mr. Lincoln and gets him reinstated, doesn't he? And Reuben is later going to be worried that he doesn't get a promotion and he's going to resign. Ozias goes to Mr. Lincoln and Reuben comes back in as a major. Now what is Reuben's cruel? What's Reuben's crime? of collecting $2 a person and kickbacks for those 2,300 men who were put aboard Sultana. What would the television, would, would they like it now? So that's one thankfully forgotten, except for Snoop's. Then I, I didn't talk. I'm going to have to go back to my, my favorite of all. And this man is the most important man of all in bringing Phil Sheridan to the front. Now, Phil, I am an admirer of Phil Sheridan, unlike one of Marshall's lawyer friends. Now, Phil Sheridan takes Phil five years to get to West Point. He has to sit out a year for fighting with a fellow cadet, because he thinks he's an uppity Virginian. But Cadet Terrell, Cadet Sergeant Terrell, joins the Union and will die at the Battle of Perryville. Well, Sheridan graduates after five years, and he's assigned to the 4th Infantry. Receives his only wound, which if you're, if you're in the front, and Sheridan was a person that led from the front, he has to be lucky to not 
killed or wounded in their civil war. The only wound he receives is in the Steptoe Indian War out in Washington Territory. Now, Sheridan has done something most cadets have not. He, is not, uh, he has worked in a store, keeping the books, not cooking the books. <laughs> Back in Somerset, so he knows something that most army officers do not, how to balance books. And he's assigned to General Halleck's staff in St. Louis. Now it so happens that Halleck, there's been a lot of corruption under one, uh, probably uh, since uh, under General John Charles Fremont's administration of the Department of the Missouri. And uh, there's a big shortage of funds. Now, $9 million is a big sum, not a big sum now. Any two-bit crook can, amb uh, can embezzle $9 million now. But $9 million is a real sum in the Civil War. And Halleck finds out there's that shortage in the accounts of the quartermaster department. So Halleck will, in, Halleck will give Sheridan the task of finding out where it is. And he finds it out, and I hope, no one, I hope this is no one's great-grandfather. The man is Justice McKinstry, is a quartermaster of the department and a brigadier general. And Justice McKinstry will get the honor or the dishonor of being the only Union or Confederate general officer that we convicted of fraud, waste, and abuse in the Civil War. But he does play one important role. If that had not happened, maybe we would have never heard of little Phil Sheridan uh, as, as the war progresses. So thank goodness for Justice, Justice McKinstry, but thank good he's forgotten. <laughs> so he makes a good story of that. Now, uh, you're going, so we've dealt with uh, these, some forgotten generals, and now we have uh, battles. Uh, I'm only going to focus on two and the two with me, uh, who listened last night, because uh, I'm not going to have anything new. I did bring in that new one for you guys that had to sit with me last night about this wonderful man, Reuben Hatch. And he's an Illinoisan. I hate to do that in Illinois to you folks. Because <laughs> you would say, you could say he actually had a good role since the Sultana is licensed to carry 300 people. And he puts 2,300 people on that vessel. Wonderful man. Okay, the battles I suggested uh, to bring up are, and uh, they're, they're way out ones, you can say, why do you think them? But uh, they're somewhat significant. Because if you saw the movie Glory, when do you, who do you think is the first black regiment in the Union Army? 54th Massachusetts. What do you think the first battle blacks fight in? 
for wider. The 54th Massachusetts even isn't even thought of. When Jim Lane, now briefly is the 54th Massachusetts will be organized after Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation. And they will not be, no, the Union will not officially move to organize any black regiments till after the first day of January 1863. But you have three Union generals that are, are going to organize them before that. And they're, they're not very popular. Now or then. They are, and everybody be proud to know them. Three of them are household words. And it's strange to say that three of their household words, if you're a Virginian, though you really should hate him more in South Carolina, but he's hated in Virginia, and not in South Carolina, is our, again our friend Dave Hunter, who in, the sum, who in early summer of 62 will organize the first and second South Carolina. Mr. Lincoln isn't ready for them, so they refuse to pay the poor guys. Well, you then get a fellow named John, uh, John Phelps. He will organize one regiment, and even and down in uh, New, uh, New Orleans. But the one we, who you, and even the people in New Orleans don't know about him, they loathe. And this man is a lawyer, so Marshall has to like him. And he's a smart lawyer. Don't you like him? That's Benjamin Franklin Butler. And he will organize five black regiments. Three of them are free men of color. Two are of principally a freedman. The two regiment, the first and the second regiments of free men of color, the company grade officers are black, which they are not in the USCTs. And the final one will be the one I spoke on of that will see action before any other black regiment does, and they're organized by the grim chieftain Jim Lane. So if you live in Missouri, that's your bet nor of all Confederate, uh, Union generals. Anyway, you think you're right because he commits suicide. But he'll organize the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry, which sees action first at Island Mound, Missouri, north of Nevada, on 26th and 27th day of October 9, 1862, will uh, fight in a battle uh, and other engagements at Cabin Creek and Honey Springs before the 54th Massachusetts sees action. So you have uh, that battle of, of Island Mound. Unless you're interested in black history, you don't know it. And people interest, except unless you're in Massachusetts, 
uh, the people out in Kansas and Missouri get very upset about the recognition and what they saw in glory, which would give, now, now I'm not detracting from the 54th, I'm just saying, let's put a history a little straight. And the other one is a way outer, it's out at Kildare Mountain in North Dakota, in which United States forces will engage uh, Indians. Now, this is important, because this is the first battle that a man is going to be George R. that the white man will ever identify, Sitting Bull. The first time he'll appear in any official publication is at Kildare Mountain. And he'll be a betonor to one of our Civil War heroes on the 25th day of June, 1876. Also, they will in that battle, for the first time, the army will meet the Lakota Sioux, who, to whom the, uh, the Santee Sioux have fled for help. And if you're in, into the Devil Lake Massacre, you even have Impaduta. So you get all those Indians all out there. So that would have, uh, that's become a forgotten battle. And as I say, Custer probably would have liked to have known about that a little later. All right, so we've gone through the forgotten. We'll now go into the unappreciated. Since I shortchanged one of your battles that I just mentioned it because I ran out of time last night. Now, uh, ones will be the engagement at Blackburn's Ford on the 18th day of July, 18. 61. It ties in with that remark I had a few minutes ago about these wonderful four men's names I mentioned, along with Erwin McDowell, Tyler, Utter, Einzelman, and Miles. On that day, the Confederates have retreated and fallen back behind Bull Run. Uh, the, uh, as we know, uh, the whole Union plan is to use McDowell's 32,000 men to beat up on Beauregard's 25 to 26,000. And they've given another man that I should have mentioned probably, but I wanted to save him back for here, another one of the great generals in the Civil War who thankfully will be forgotten. That is Robert Patterson, who is of the same age as our friend General Scott. Now, Patterson's role is to keep Joseph Eggleston Johnston in the valley. So he cannot take his 11,000 men and move them by Shanks Mayor, that's marching, and the Manassas Gap Railroad to Manassas Junction. Now, uh, as I always, uh, I always, the best 
response to an order to do something that anybody will give during the Civil War is Patterson will inform the War Department. If Johnson Lee, Johnston leaves the valley with his men, you may shoot me. He's just given the administration permission to shoot him. Would you like to get, would you like, it's a good thing that the Lincoln administration is humane. He's just given him uh, the opportunity to shoot him because Jackson leaves, Johnston leaves the valley. And of course, that's why the Battle of Blackburn's Ford will be so important. If it had not taken place, Jackson, Johnston probably would not have got to the valley and got, would, not, probably, would probably have not gotten to Manassas Junction because the battle would have taken place on the 19th. But the fact that Tyler exceeds the orders from McDowell and will convert a reconnaissance into an attack and of course, unless you're a trained soldier or experienced barroom brawler, it's going to bother you when you run into guys that are going to stand and fight like the Confederates do. And the 12th New York is going to forget about all that. The girls waving at them as they go off, attack across Blackburn's Ford and suffer heavy losses and result in a panic. And because of this, McDowell will not attack for two days. So that would be an unappreciated battle. It has considerable importance. The other one I've chosen, since uh, most people are Eastern-oriented, uh, yeah, because you've been associating with Marshall Krolik for a long time, and uh, that is the Battle of Oak Grove. Now, when you get to count seven days battle, you have a little trouble. Start Mechanicsville on the 26th and end up with Maverick Hill on the 1st. And that doesn't make seven days. That makes six days. And Oak Grove is the first battle. And that's the only way you can get seven days. Now, if the on now Lee is very nervous, and now probably as nervous as he's going to be in the campaign, because Jackson is not supposed to arrive until the 26th. He's supposed to arrive in the morning, the 26th, but you know, he never gets there on the 26th. But on the 25th, General Heinzelman, and maybe that's one he, why he's one, of the una, one he's one of the forgotten ones or unappreciated. He's going to advance his corps along the West Point Railroad and the Williamsburg Pike with two guys that like to fight, Joe Hooker and Carney. They're going to move against the Confederates, and they're going to force the Confederates back. They want to seize high ground at Old Church where they put guns into position and soften up the Confederate position. Uh, but McClellan lacks the nerve to follow through, but Lee spends a very nervous time 
And that joins my list of uh, unappreciated battles. Now I'm only going to focus on two unappreciated Union generals. Now the now as you go in in from June 1864 to the end of the Civil War, we know that General Sherman commands an army group. He commands a military division. And uh, we know that there is only other one military division uh, in the Union command at that time. And that's the military division West Mississippi. That is commanded by E.R.S. Canby. Now he's born in Kentucky, so Brooks ought to like him. He remains loyal to the Union and will, uh, will be the Union colonel. He'll get to be a brigadier general who will, too bad we're missing our, one of your old, our old friends, that you tried, lobbied long and hard to get the round table to go to New Mexico. And uh, this is, of course, Canby is the one that turns back the Confederates in New Mexico. And Marvin is one of the few that followed him there, right? Marshall wouldn't go, would he? All right, you got another one, but there was not... There was not a great outpouring, but that didn't stop Marvin. And he will end up commanding the, this military division, which involves the Gulf Coast, everything west of the Mississippi River to the Pacific Coast. And he will, uh, under his administration, he has to take over and clean up the mess left by General Banks. And he will conduct the last offensive against the Confederates. In fact, the Battle of Fort Blakely, in which they seal the fate of Mobile, is fought later in the day then General Lee surrenders his army to General Grant, taking place on the 9th of April. He'll enter Mobile on the 12th of April from the Confederate forces under Dick Taylor on the 4th of, of May and Kirby Smith on the 26th of May. And to, to show off it all, now, George Arm when the Indians kill George Armstrong Custer, they're only killing a lieutenant colonel. When they kill General Canby, they kill a major general, a real major general. So Canby is, I think, an unappreciated man. And go back to my friend General Butler. Now, General Butler, I don't really appreciate him as a military man, uh, but I appreciate him uh, for other things. Who marches into Baltimore? And, me, and days after that riot and the blood flowed in the streets of Baltimore, occupies Freedom Hill, puts cannon on Freedom Hill, 
and overalls the secessionists in Baltimore. Who gives a legal definition? When poor Mr. Lincoln is confronted by the fugitive slave law and his position that secession is illegal and the southern states are not out, who gives him the out when the sheriff shows up at Hampton, at, at Fort Monroe on the 29th of May with writs to serve on Butler because three blacks have fled to Fort Monroe. And Butler will decide. Now you, I, I can see Marshall Crowley all over this. He'll look at it and he'll know at the laws of war that these blacks have been working on fortifications. Since blacks are considered property, they're by working on Confederate forts, they're giving aid and comfort to the Confederates. And he will rule them contraband of war and will refuse to return them. And this will for the guys on which thousands of blacks long before the Emancipation Proclamation fleeing to Union lines will not be returned under the fugitive slave law. So that is an unappreciated Union officer is General Butler. And I could, uh, don't, I want to get through some more subjects or I could get some more on General Butler uh, and how, well, I have to go into this one. Now, Butler, uh, Butler is an excellent lawyer. So when he issues his woman's order, now what the women in New Orleans are doing, they're insulting Union soldiers. So he will issue an order that henceforth New Orleans females insulting Union soldiers will be, will be treated as women of the street plying their trade. It, the British government goes into orbit. How could you do such a thing? The Confederate Congress will brand him a, a, a war criminal to be shot if captured. Butler then simply goes and comes out. You know where I got this order, he tells the British consul. This is your order that you issue when you occupy towns in Europe. So that, that makes them all the angrier because... Uh, he, so we've got Butler there. So he's, now that's why I put him unappreciated. Now, Confederates who are unappreciated, the easy one is Joseph Reed Anderson, a West Point graduate, a superintendent at Tredegar, but he's, patriot, he's patriotic, so he leaves his position of superintendent at Tredegar and becomes a brigadier general. Anybody can be a brigadier general. And he will fight in the Seven Days Campaign, get himself wounded. And then they'll finally realize the Confederate government, he's a lot more valuable to us back at Tredegar. And back at Tredegar, with his skills as a manager, he'll undoubtedly kill 
and do as much to pro, uh, yank, more Yankees than any than Robert E. Lee will, and he will uh, an aid with a, he will an aid the Confederates. He will aid the Confederates in carrying on a much longer prolonged ex, uh, resistance than probably anybody else. So he would be rather pro, uh, underappreciated. And oh, P.G.T. Beauregard, P.G.T. Beauregard holds Petersburg for four days when General Lee does not realize that Grant has crossed the James River. During days when on the 15th, when Beauregard with 3,500 men, assisted by failures on the Union leadership, but the Yankees still are going to have 15 to 20,000 men in front of Petersburg on the 15th. And each day after that, the Union, the Beauregard, though he'll increase the strength and hold the Federals at bay until Lee arrives on the 18th and thus prolongs the war considerably. So he's somewhat, uh, he is, I believe, an unappreciated resource. And except for Davis's uh, personal whims would have been a far better selection than some of the other men that Davis makes uh, to lead the Army of Tennessee, such as uh, our good friend Braxton Bragg. And then we have a, a other one is uh, Prince John Magruder. Magruder's unappreciated. He holds McClellan at bay. Uh, from the, uh, when McClellan advances on Yorktown, arriving in front of Yorktown on the 5th with around 70,000 men, and Magruder with 13,000, uh, conducts a charade, moving his men hither and yon. Bands playing, cheering on, until the 17th. With 13,000 men, he will hold McClellan at bay, and McClellan will conduct a system of war position. Magruder will uh, do pretty good during the seven days. You're going to say maybe it's, he's got an easy mark playing on McClellan, but with 25,000 men, He'll have McClellan believing that when McClellan has 75,000 men south of the Chickahominy, Lee has 55,000 north, confronting 30,000 Yankees, uh, he is going to do a pretty good job of inducing McClellan into believing that he has astronomical numbers. And when he goes to Texas, he'll do a good job in Texas. When he recovers, uh, when he re particularly when he recovers uh, Galveston. Now we go into under misunderstood. I shouldn't talk about this. Thomas isn't here. Now I think he's misunderstood. I think General Thomas is wise to him, but I think he has Sherman, Grant, and the other much of the hierarchy in the United States government hoodwinked. He is an Illinoisan by adoption, 
though he was born in New York State. Entered West Point from Illinois. And uh, as a rapid rise, uh, he uh, will serve in Missouri. He will be at the Battle of Pea Ridge as an adjutant uh, and a major. Will be in command of the Department of Missouri at key times will end up in the command of the Army of the Ohio. And at the although he wins the Battle of Franklin, he will uh, be keeping the line, telegraph lines hot to Washington, telling that uh, Thomas is, is moving slowly. Now, Schofield has to know that Grant does not like Thomas. It would not take a, using a modern cliche, a rocket scientist to know that, because Grant is not like Thomas, and it's very evident from the time that Halleck reorganizes the army after the Battle of Shiloh, puts Grant in a position as my number two man, doing nothing, in essence, what you do when you have a subordinate you don't like very well and have him count potato, uh, paper clips because Grant is now second in command to General Halleck. Uh, General, who does, who does Halleck give Grant's army to? General Thomas. And Grant is, goes to Sherman and he's going to tell Sherman, Halleck hates me. I'm going to resign. And Sherman will tell him things will get better. Later, Sherman will paraphrase it after Grant's death. He'll, say, he'll come up with, Grant stood by me when they said I was crazy. I stood by Grant when they said he was a drunk. And he keeps coming up with these complaints that, Halleck, that Thomas will never move. Well, uh, the fleet storm comes. Grant gives Thomas a reprieve. At that time, up until after the sleet storm, Grant is going to relieve Thomas with Schofield. Once again, the letters start. They're not signed by Schofield. Grant will leave, be ready to leave for the, for Louisville on the 15th. But by this time he's decided he's going with General Logan. And he gets on the train, the telegraph comes in that Thomas has sallied forth. Now, Thomas can't believe it. His friends are going to tell him Schofield was behind it. Thomas doesn't believe it until 1871. Thomas is a large man, as large as your General Thomas, larger even than your General Thomas used to be. <laughs> and he has heart trouble. So he finally finds out it's General Thomas, uh, General Schofield is trying to do me in, writes a polemic against, Thomas, uh, against Schofield, 
has a pain in his chest. And that's the end of General Thomas. So don't get so upset that you write a polemic against somebody if you have heart trouble. <laughs> so I would say, in my mind, Schofield is, and I'm sure your General Thomas, is misunderstood. Well, you got a few battles. Uh, I'm going to focus on some, uh, some battles. Uh, everybody talks about, I don't know if you're your fellow is here. Uh, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding on the Battle of Secessionville. It's not just a battle down on James Island that is in the backwash of war. Fought on the June 16, 1862. It's the first chink in the Union armor. Up until June 16th, if you were Jimmy the Greek, before he got into serious trouble, your odds of the Confederacy being, uh, being alive, by January 1st, it would be a 10,000 to 1. But beginning with Secessionville, on the 16th day of June, the Confederates are going to have a run that from the seven days in the east through second Manassas and across the Potomac in western Virginia from Lewisburg through Charleston to the mouth of the Kanawha River in the west from Tupelo, Mississippi and Knoxville, Tennessee, to Richmond, Kentucky, to Munfordville, Kentucky, to having Grant on the defensive in northwest East Mississippi, to recovering all of Arkansas. So Secessionville is at first of that series of battles, offensive operations, that will see the Confederate Army swimming forward from Tidewater to the Indian Territory. That will only be, be reversed with the Battle of Antietam. So hence, a, one of my misunderstood battles, uh, un, uh, uh, under, under, not, uh, uh, not understood. Another one would be uh, the Battle of the Wilderness. And I'm going to end with the Battle of the Wilderness. Because you could argue that the Battle of the Wilderness is a more important battle for the effect on the war than Vicksburg. Keep my Westerners happy. Gettysburg. Or Antietam. Ulysses S. Grant, as general-in-chief of the army, has decided to keep his army in the field. And in the period between the 5th and the 6th of May, Meade's army of the Potomac 
and you have to feel sorry for General Meade with a general in chief looking over his right shoulder. Think of what would happen in World War II if on the 18th day of December, George Catlett Marshall, nervous on what had happened, would catch the plane to Paris and look over the right shoulder of Dwight D. Eisenhower. Or think of George Catlett Marshall, say when the Japanese are approaching Fort Mor Port Moresby in September, when it looks like the Japanese are going to kick us off to Lagi and Guadalcanal, if George Catlett Marshall caught the plane over to Brisbane, Australia, and looked over God's shoulder. <laughs> that is the same situation George G. Meade is in. Now the wilderness is a terrible battle. If you're a Yankee, your chances of being a casualty at the wilderness in two days are greater than being a casualty at the Battle of Chancellorsville. If you're a Reb, hell, we lost 13,000 at Chancellorsville. We only lost 11,000. So if you're calling numbers and casualties, the Army of the Potomac has suffered worse at the Battle of the Wilderness. Worse in percentage of casualties than they suffered at Antietam. Worse in percentage of casualties to the enemy than they did at Gettysburg. And at the evening of that day, the Union Army is convinced that we're going to get orders tonight to go back across the Rapidan and the Rappahannock. And another campaign has ended the same way as Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Or if you substitute the Potomac for Rappahannock and Rapidan as Fredericksburg, excuse me, as Second Manassas. The Confederate Army, except for Robert E. Lee, is as convinced that the Yankees will be gone in the morning. They've drubbed them. They've stopped them. And the Union on two occasions have been in very bad situations. Lee will, which will frustrate Grant in his move to the Spotsylvania, Cordell's will have more faith in his evaluation of Grant than his rank and file and his officers, because he'll tell old man Pendleton, I want you to open a shortcut from Parker's Crossroads to the Shady Rope Church Road. So all the next day, It looks to those except in the immediate no 
that the Union Army will be across the Rapidan and the Rappahannock. But orders have gone out that they're going on. They're going to move around Grant's and Lee's right flank. And if you were sitting or if you were standing there, smoke begrimed in the second corps. The fire is still burning from the fighting on the afternoon of the 6th. And you would say, General, we have a lady here, I understand, that's interested in Governor Warren. And you would see first Grant and Meade and their staffs, then Governor Warren's 5th Corps move through that crossroads and down the Brock Road. From that decision, the road will be long and bloody, but there'll be no turning back. And it's going to end in Wilmer McLean's parlor at 3.30 in the afternoon on the on good on on Palm Sunday and all that event starts from the wilderness my nomination for the most unappreciated battle in the Civil War thank you for your attention anyone has any questions I'll try to answer Time for a couple of questions. Oh, we got we got this gentleman and then Mr. Sullivan. Yes. Uh, you mentioned General Pendleton cutting this road at the, during the Wilderness Campaign. Uh, Pendleton made some mistakes earlier in the war. What would be your opinion of Pendleton's performance during the last year of the war, beginning with the Wilderness? My opinion of uh, William Nelson Pendleton, except for opening that road and his rather colorful remarks, of naming his guns at the Battle of uh, First Manassas as Mar Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was probably a good Episcopal rector, uh, but probably uh, the poorest chief of artillery in, in, in any of the armies in, any, in, in, in both sides. I think it's a, a crime of Lee sustaining him against the army, uh, uh, particularly in the uh, the army against the role of the consummate professional of uh, General Hunt as a chief of artillery in the Army of the Potomac. I think except for that, we would have to confine him as better forgotten. <laughs> Our, uh, Sully had his hand up, and then I got to see someone over there. Unappreciated, General. He was a lieutenant colonel at Pea Ridge and won the Congressional Medal. What's that? I said he was a lieutenant colonel at Pea Ridge and won the Congressional Medal. His men marched farther and faster than Stonewall Jackson's foot cavalry, all the way from Springfield, Missouri to Prairie Grove to support a Union Army in trouble. He, uh, most of his men that were found on the field had died of exhaustion and going directly into the battle. I mean, of course, <clears throat> that wonderful member of the bar, Francis J. Heron, it may be because he was a member of the bar he's been unappreciated, or maybe because he went crazy, some say, upon trying to study all of the Third District Court of Appeals records. But in any case, why with this tremendous feat of marching farther, faster than Jackson, into the teeth of a battle, why is Francis J. Herring forgotten? I don't know. I, if I, 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 
uh, I, Heron's March from uh, Wilson's Creek uh, to, uh, to, uh, the, uh, uh, to uh, Prairie Grove uh, far surpasses Jackson's March uh, to, uh, uh, to Bristow Station. I, you can only focus on so many in, uh, in the length of time I had, but I'm a, I, would, I, would sustain, I would submit you're correct. Yes, but my great-great-grandfather... A little louder. But my great-great-grandfather didn't march with Jackson, he marched with him. Okay. <laughs> over there. You have one over there. Vince? Someone over there. What's that? General Benjamin Butler yeah. at Fort Monroe. Was he motivated by humanitarian reasons or <coughs> humanitarian reasons or military reasons? General Butler at Fort, Fort Monroe. For the contraband. For the contraband. Was the contraband. Was the contraband. Was he motivated by humanitarian reasons or the reasons at uh, Fort Monroe? The, the reason Butler on uh, at Fort Monroe, he uh, according to he is supposed to, by law, return these three blocks to the to the sheriff on writs sworn out. Because the uh, Lincoln's position this time is that the southern states are not outside the Union. United States laws should still be in force. So Butler uh, gives an out to it, and that is since the blocks are being employed by the Confederates in working on the fortifications. They're giving aid and comfort to the enemy, uh, so he decides they're contraband of war, and he refuses to return them. And that gives them, uh, and then for a long, until after, at least, even after the Emancipation Proclamation, they'll refer to the blacks as contraband, because they come to the camps of the Union, uh, escaping uh, from, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the from the south, and they will uh, they will let them they will let them come into the camps. They'll give them food. They'll let them work for them, and re, re, and thus retain the figment uh, that the uh, the uh, the southern states are still in the union, but they're not. But using the contraband of war until they come out with the Emancipation Proclamation, not returning them. So uh, from there, uh, it's calling the blacks contraband. Thank you. Okay. One more. One more question. Uh, in the post-Atlanta period, I wonder if General John M. Corse met your criteria for underappreciated at the uh, Battle of Alatoona Gap. <clears throat> well, if I, if I, I, he would meet my criteria, but I had to, I had to, I had to do it in so X number of times. Yes, I think uh, uh, of his defense of uh, Alatoona Pass, though uh, Sherman kind of cuts him down a little bit when, when Corse sends that message, he says, I put, uh, uh, when he got wounded, he says, I've been uh, uh, shot very badly, uh, lost a cheekbone and part of a ear. And when Sherman says it, uh, he says, they darn near missed you, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> when we uh, were having our 65th um, anniversary, who else could we have invited but our good friend Ed Byers, such a friend of ours for so many years and the friend of the roundtable movement in general, Ed, I know you have probably a box full of these, but they can't capture our love and appreciation. Oh, yeah. But 
We love you dearly. We thank you for all you do for us and for the Roundtable Movement. To Edmund C. Byers, October 14, 2005, with the grateful appreciation of the Chicago Roundtable on our 65th anniversary. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. Uh, I always uh, he's not Father Miller, he's Padre Miller. <laughs> now in the Naval Services, uh, which includes the Marine Corps, they refer the chaplain is always referred to as a Padre, whether he's a Baptist, whether he's a Methodist, whether he's a rabbi, whether he's a, uh, uh, a Catholic, or whatever they always, and I do not know when they started it, but the Marine Corps and the Navy always refer to the uh, chaplain as the Padre. So I refer to my good friend here, the Padre. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much. Next month, Edwin C. Bonekemper on Grant to Victor Nata Butcher. Again, last chance, guests, $5 off. Fill out that form tonight. Thank you very much. Have a great month. Oh, Lincoln and Liberty too.
with our back. 